Well, as they're making their way, I'd like you to make your way to Mark chapter 4, if you would. So Matthew, Mark is the next one, right? Right after that. So Matthew chapter 4. Last week, we launched into a new series in our uh, message together um, on discipleship and on renewing our church's emphasis on making disciples. Uh, What we looked at last week, we saw Jesus' own call given to His disciples. Uh, We saw that He said to them, Come, follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so what we then did with that was to, to say that out of that we can see that Jesus' call to discipleship has three critical components. Uh, number one, following Jesus. He said that. Come, follow me. So if you're going to be Jesus' disciple, you have to follow Jesus. Secondly, you need to be transformed by Jesus. The I will make you portion of that. And then also you have to join Jesus on His mission of making disciples. That's what He wants them to do. Become fishers of men. Not fishermen, but fishers of men. Uh, People who, who help other people find and follow Jesus. And my assumption, my operating assumption, is that if you are here this morning that you actually do want to follow Jesus and do the things that He wants us to do and to live life the way that He tells us is the best way to live. And so that God is calling us to make disciples and that you would actually like to know how to do that. It's my operating assumption. And so uh, we're going to see a little more uh, about uh, what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. Because... Being a disciple who makes disciples is not simply the calling of the pastor, although it is my calling. It's not just Stephen's calling. It's not just the elder's calling. It's our calling as believers in Jesus Christ because Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will make you into something. I will put you on mission with me in making disciples. And it is the definition of a growing Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. And if we're going to carry that out, we need to make sure we understand some things very clearly. And one of the things that we need to understand very, very clearly is the nature of saving faith. Of saving faith. Because, you know, the, the fact is, is that there are a lot of people over time who will, you will hear make professions of faith who will say things like, well, yes, I believe in Jesus, or I believe in God, or of course I believe in what I was taught at church, or or these kinds of things. But then over time, will reveal themselves to not actually possess the kind of faith that actually saves a person and transforms them. And this is a very important issue, because if you have been a Christian very long, and especially if you share the gospel with very many people at all, then what you will see is people make a profession. And then you will see some of them, after a while, just kind of fade away. 
And sometimes that is especially painful because the people we're talking about are in some cases our own children who have made a profession of faith and then it fades away. Are those people saved? I'm not going to answer that right this second. I want to show you what the Scripture says. But I want to submit to you that nothing in the world could be more important than understanding what the nature of saving faith is. Not only for them, but for us. So that we know how to respond in that situation. Do we need to continue, as an example, to keep presenting the gospel to them? Or do we need to push them to grow in the faith that they have? If they aren't saved, they need the gospel desperately. Amen? And if they are, they need to be pushed to grow. So which is it? I want to let Jesus answer the question himself. So if you've got your Bible open, uh, Mark chapter 4, this is the, called the parable of the sower in my Bible. You might, your Bible might call it the parable of the four soils or the parable of the soils or, or something like that. But the parable goes like this. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is not a complicated story. This is not hard. Jesus is teaching by the, by the Sea of Galilee. There's a crowd pressing in around him. And, and so what he does to, to, to be heard and to be seen by everybody is to get into a little boat, a little dinghy, uh, there on the shore, and anchor the boat just offshore out in the water where he could sit down in the boat and teach to a whole crowd of people who were gathered around if you've ever been out on the water, you, can, you know, there's, there's kind of a, even an acoustic dynamic to that, to where it kind of amplifies what you're saying. And so the illustration here that Jesus is giving in the parable is one of the common practices of the time. What you did was you went out and sowed by hand the seed that you were going to plant, and then later you would come back in with the plow and turn it under. And so... Uh, that's very different, by the way, from what we normally do today. Normally what we do is we, pull, we till up everything, and then we come back in, and it's very precise. In modern agriculture, and at least in the U.S., is very precise. And you, know, you can drill the seed in at precise depth, 
and so many, you know, so many seeds apart in the row and so, you know, so, much, so wide on the furrows and all that kind of thing. It's all about maximizing yield in the amount of ground that you have. But in you know, the ancient world, they did not have all that level of precision and they didn't have all that equipment, more importantly. And so they would throw it out on the ground and, and then later come back in with the plow and, and kind of till it in and hope that whatever was there, most of it grew. And so you have some, some different things that happen. Now, you know, when you sow like that, I don't know how many of y'all have ever sowed grass seed out in your yard, but when you're doing it by hand and you're just kind of throwing it, uh, some of it gets where you want it. And some of it gets in some other places, right? Into the flower bed, maybe, or uh, over on your driveway, or, you know, somewhere else. And, and this is what happened as Jesus tells it. Uh, so some of the some of the path uh, some of the seed falls on a path near the field and it gets consumed by birds. Why does that happen? Because the seed on the on the path, the dirt is too hard along that path for the the seed to penetrate the soil and grow in. And and other seed lands on real thin soil that has a layer of rock right underneath it, and so it it, it germinates and grows. But because it can't get down below the rock layer, it doesn't grow long because the roots can't go deep and the plant dies for lack of water and nutrients when the sun gets hot. And likewise, you've got seed that falls among the thorns and it grows for a while. But after a while, the, the weeds start to choke it out. They just take over. And and in Jesus' story, only the seeds that fall on the good soil are the ones that grow and produce a crop. And the crop, by the way, is abundant. It's 30 times or 60 times or 100 times the amount of grain that you get back what you put in the ground. That's, that's the whole point of farming, isn't it? To get a yield. And ideally, the yield is much greater than the amount of seed you planted. In fact, if you only get back as much seed as you put in the ground, you'd have just kept it and ate it. And so he says they're looking for a yield 30, 60, or 100 times, and that's what he got out of the seed that fell on the good soil. So far, so good, right? But then Jesus concludes with verse 9. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is meant, I think, to indicate is Jesus' way of telling us, look, I'm not just telling you a story about agriculture. I'm trying to tell you something, some kind of truth that is more significant than just what happens as you go out chucking seed across the field. There's, there's something more, there's a deeper level of truth that's here than what it first appears. And so he, he calls people in to listen close and to investigate further what the meaning of the story is. And if we have ears to hear, and we can hear from Jesus' own lips, him clearly explain what he means in this passage. So look at verse 10. And when he was alone, 
those around him with him, with the twelve, ask him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now, picture the scene, if you will. The crowd is gone. Ever, you know, Jesus has been uh, has been teaching some portion of the day. I, I'm I'm imagining this, you know, as if it's at night. Maybe it's not. But, but, there, but the idea is, is sometime later, after, after the big crowd is gone, it's the twelve and a, a few members of the crowd who, who have ears to hear, who've drawn in to listen to what Jesus has to say. And they know, the people who are listening, know that Jesus is doing more in these stories than it first appears. Like, wait a minute. There's something more to this. There's got to be something more to this than just telling me about basic agriculture. Of course that's what happens. So what? What's the point of that, Jesus? Why doesn't he just come out and explain himself more directly? Why teach in parables when you could just come at the truth just straight on and just hit people between the eyes where they couldn't miss it? We ask him, what, what, what are you doing? I, what's the point of this, Jesus? And Jesus answers him, and he tells him three important things. He says, first of all, you who are gathered to listen have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And everybody who's not gathered in to listen further is people he calls those outside. What, what separates them? What is the dividing line what's the secret says that you've got the secret of the kingdom of god okay well what's the secret jesus the secret is is that getting into the kingdom of god requires drawing near to jesus and following him you want to be in the kingdom of god you have to draw near to jesus and follow him it requires ears to hear what he says and to embrace it as the truth that it is. And those who have drawn near are therefore those who have received the secret. They have ears to hear. 
If they didn't, they wouldn't be there. They're the people who have ears to hear. Now, number two, Jesus says, and I'm preaching in parables for a reason, because in doing it, I am fulfilling prophecy given through Isaiah in chapter 6, uh, 6 through 10. Now, if you look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 is this great passage, and you see Isaiah in the early part of the chapter has this, this incredible vision of the Lord seated in the temple. And, it's a, and, and you, it, it, says, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he says, and there were seraphs flying through the air, and they had six wings, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they were flying. And he says, and one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He says at the sound of their voices, the, the foundations of the temple were shaken. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, that's an amazing thing because the, the, the foundations of the temple are these stones that you can't even imagine how they got them in there. Some of them weigh 80 tons. But at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, whose name means burning ones, these angels that are made of fire are shouting praise to the Lord and these 80 ton stones are shaking at the sound. It is an impressive scene. If you've never read it, you should read it. And then, and then, and then one of the angels grabs a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips because Isaiah says, as he sees this scene of the Lord and these angels that are on fire, he says, woe is me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. One of these angels grabs this coal with a pair of tongs off the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with it, and he's purified. And then he gets his commission from the Lord. The Lord says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, Here am I. Send me. Right? And, and God says, Great! Here's the message. Go out and tell them. Here's the message, Isaiah. Go out and tell them, keep sinning. Keep sinning. Go ahead and harden your heart against God. It's working out great. Persist in it. Keep doing it. It's going well so far and judgment is coming. So persist. And he says, how long? O Lord. And the Lord says, until all the cities of Israel are laid waste in judgment. It's an ironic, in other words, command. It's like when you tell your kid, go ahead and stick that screwdriver in the light socket, see what it does. <laughs> okay? And then when he gets shocked, you tell him he's grounded. In every sense, right? 
But, um, <laughs> but anyway, sorry, dad joke. But um, anyway, but, but that's the idea. Is it's meant when the prophet tells you, when the prophet of God tells you, hey, just continue in your sin, I'm sure it'll be fine. Go ahead and touch the stove, son. I've told you not to about ten times, but go ahead and touch it. See what happens. Is that's the idea, is that Jesus says, I'm teaching in parables as a form of prophetic warning against them. Because they think they understand, but they don't. And so I'm telling them stories that they think they understand, but they don't. As a witness against them, that they think they understand what it means to be, uh, be obedient to God, but they don't. And I'm trying to do what Isaiah did, which is to say to them, oh yeah, you've got it all figured out. Go ahead. These verses are a warning. And the hard-hearted are going to turn away and go, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what the fascination is with Jesus. But the soft-hearted, those with ears to hear, are going to draw near to listen and repent and enter into the kingdom of God. And the third thing that Jesus says is probably the most important. And the third thing is, this is what the parable means. Let me explain to you what the parable means. The meaning is simple. He says, the sower is the person who sows the Word. In the immediate context, Jesus. But in the, it, it, as it applies to us, every faithful person who shares the Word with someone else is the sower. They're the sower. The sower gives the gospel. And when the gospel is given, there are going to be four different responses that you see. The first kind of person that you're going to see is a person who is hardened. Their reaction is hardened rejection of what you have shared with them. That is the soil on the path. We all know people like that. You know, you, 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 you get the courage up to, to share with somebody and you say, you know, this has changed my life. And maybe it's even a member of your family. And you share with them the gospel and you, you pour out your heart to them and, and tell them about what Jesus has done for you. And they go, oh man, what do you have to bring up all that Jesus junk for? I don't want to hear about that. Or and even in the middle of the conversation, I heard, uh, I, heard, I heard someone tell me one time that they tried to share the gospel with a member of their family and they got out of the, of the place that they were like, like they had an eject button, right? Uh, and they didn't even wait for him to finish. Just gone. I'm out. <laughs> you know, Their reaction is just hardened rejection. You know, sometimes verbally, sometimes non-verbally, maybe even physically, but the reaction is the same. I don't want any part of this. What has happened? Well, what's happened, Jesus says, is that Satan has snatched the word 
away from them before it can take root in them. And the second person that you, the second kind of reaction you might get is, is the person who is like thin soil over a rocky place. And here I think about uh, Karen and I when we lived in Dallas. Uh, we lived there for almost four years of our life. And the soil in Texas is junk. I mean, it, 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 grows, it grows cattle and cactus and big whitetails and very little else. You know, jackrabbits, okay? And the reason is, is that right below the soil, there's a layer of just hard, packed rock. It's just rock. You can barely get grass to grow. It's terrible. And anything that does grow doesn't grow long. Because, like, we would plant stuff, you know, we'd, have a, we'd try to have flowers every year. And the flowers went great from, like, March until May. And then what happened is the sun got hot, and they just, you know, and it was just it. It's like, well, that was the growing season. Hope you enjoyed the flowers. Right? I mean, that's really what happened. There's just, there just no way to get down below all that rock to any kind of good soil. And these are like people who believe the gospel, but when life's difficulties hit, or when they encounter a little bit of persecution against them because of it, they fall away. And by the way, I think that's what we're seeing en masse right now in America among some people. These are people you might call cultural Christians. These are people who were all down for Christianity as long as it was popular and respectable. But now that being a Christian might entail some costs, uh, I'm not down for the struggle, guys. I'm out. You see that all across America. You see it with a lot of young people, unfortunately. Where, you know, yeah, they think that this is probably true, but I'm not willing to endure anything for it. The third response is like the seed among the thorns. And what happens to them is, is that the things of this world ultimately prove much more attractive to them than Jesus. And so they make a trade. They decide they would ultimately rather have the false gods of material things and fulfilling my desires and having a comfortable life in this world rather than the joys of Christ and eternity. And, and I, see this, I see this happen. You know, you have somebody who, who walks with Jesus supposedly for some period of time, and then all of a sudden, you know, a guy that maybe has been married for many years to his wife decides that he would rather have a younger model and trades her in along with his kids to chase a girl who looks good in the car. 
And then he never darkens the door of a church again. Because the things of this world are more attractive to him than the lasting joys of Jesus. Or you see a woman who decides that she would rather climb the corporate ladder than follow Christ. Because after all, this leads to a nice home and a nice car and the respect and honor of all my peers. And the fact that they will forget about me six months after I quit this job doesn't matter because it's given me a whole lot of pleasure now. Does that happen? Yeah, that happens. Are these people saved? The first one, we all, I think, would agree. No, they're definitely not. What about the middle two? I don't know. But here's what I do know. Here's what Jesus said. He who endures to the end will be saved. Are these people believers? I hope so. I pray so. But I think they're probably not. The last one is the joyful one. The last soil makes it all worth it. This is the seed that's sown on good soil because this is the person who believes the gospel and it has an effect. It changes their life. They bear fruit. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. Not a little bit of fruit, a lot of fruit, and glorifying God. If you look at Jesus' teaching, and this is very sobering, if you look at Jesus' teaching, the answer pretty clearly on number two and number three is they're not saved. They're not saved. Only the last person who bore fruit possesses new life in Christ. Only the last person will be in heaven. And I know that's a hard word, but that is what Jesus said. And by the way, if you read Paul, you read James, you read John, you read Peter, read whoever you want. In the New Testament, they're going to tell you the same thing. That faith in Jesus perseveres in the person who believes in Jesus in an authentic way because Jesus perseveres in them all the way to the end of their life. To have new life in Christ is to have Christ live within you and live his life through you. And to cause you, therefore, to be held all the way to the end. So, three questions. Three critical questions. Number one, do you have saving faith in Jesus? Do you have saving faith in Jesus? I remember when I was in my seminary days, you know, uh, 
they, they were magic days for me. They really were. And in between classes, we would sit around, I would sit around with my buddies, and we would discuss and debate theology and various passages of Scripture and how they should be interpreted and how they should be understood and preached and all that kind of thing. And this is one that we talked about a lot. Because it's one that many of us, and certainly me, would want the person with the rocky heart or the thorny heart to be saved. We wanted them to be included in heaven. And invariably, somebody would say, okay, all right, wait a minute, hold on. But what about the thief on the cross? I mean, here's a guy who is literally dying. You know, he's, he's minutes away from dying. And he puts his trust in Jesus, and he has no opportunity to bear fruit in that faith. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What about that guy? How does he fit into this? And it's a good point, because Jesus really did save that guy. And he had no opportunity to fall away, and no opportunity to bear fruit. And he believed, and he died. But let's remember that the Christian life that Jesus calls us to is not one where we are competing to see how little evidence of genuine faith we can exhibit and still be in heaven. Okay? That is not the goal. And may I suggest to you, if it is the goal for you to see how much sin you can get away with without God shutting the door in your face when you arrive at His kingdom that you are probably not a believer. Because that is not what a believer's heart does. Right? It's like, it's like asking your wife, so how many times can I commit adultery before you divorce me? I mean, what's the limit here? I mean, if I asked that question, I would lose sleep at night, Right? have to sleep with one eye open make sure she wasn't going to stab me <laughs> right <laughs> because even asking the question is itself such a revealing thing about what your heart really says right even to ask that question is a horrific thing And we are not to be competing to see how little evidence of genuine faith we can have and still be saved. What we want to do is exhibit how much we love Jesus and how much we can obey Jesus and how much we can exhibit a heart and a life that has been transformed, not for our glory, but for the glory of the person we love, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, that we might be set free from them, not that we might live in them. Amen? Does God save even dying people who repent? Yes. Say that with me. Yes, He does. Okay? But that's not the objective. And many times, a life lived in rebellion against God means that even a dying person will not repent at their death. So let me ask you again. Do you have saving faith? 
have you experienced in actuality the transformation Jesus promises will happen when you are born again? If you haven't, may I suggest to you that God is having me give this message for you that you might repent and have new life. Because if you are alive, there ought to be evidence of the fact. If you are alive, there ought to be fruit that is born in your life as a result. Do you have saving faith? Are you drawing near to Jesus because you believe in Him? Second question, are you sowing seed? One of the... One of the Parts of bearing fruit as a believer in Jesus is sowing the seed. And if you read this whole chapter, Jesus gives several parables about planting seed. And He's talking to His disciples. He's talking to those who are following Him. And His encouragement to them is to chuck out the seed. You don't know where it's going to land. You don't know what kind of soil you're looking at as you're throwing out the seed, but you throw out the seed because some of it is going to land on good soil and the stuff that lands on good soil is going to bear fruit. There's going to be new life and fruit production that comes out of that. So keep chucking the seed. Amen? That's the idea behind this is that, is that you know, the next parable he says, you know, the farmer goes out and he plants his seed and he goes to sleep. And it comes up overnight. And he doesn't know how. How does it happen? Well, God causes it to grow. Well, the same thing happens with you and me. That as we go out and we sow the seed, God causes some of it to land on good soil and to grow. You know, lots of us, you know, we, when we were young believers, we, we went out and we, we said, man, I came to faith in Jesus and it was the most exciting thing in the world. And so I went out and I told everybody I knew and I got a lot of doors slammed in my face and so I quit doing that. But one of the points that Jesus is making in the parable is there's lots of good soil. So keep chucking seed. Don't focus on all the stuff that lands on the path. Don't focus on all the people whose, whose seed withers. Don't focus on all the stuff that lands in the thorns. Focus on the fact that as you sow seed, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be a yield. There's going to be a harvest to come. So are you sowing seed? If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to be a faithful disciple, you have to do what Jesus did and cast the seed of the gospel widely. Cast it widely. Now, last question. Do your disciples have saving faith? This question is also critical for us. You know, my assumption again is that if we're, if we're part of the church of Jesus Christ, we want to imitate and follow and obey Jesus. Jesus told us to make disciples. We need to know how to do that. So if you're going to make disciples, you need, to be, you need to know how to respond and how to evaluate whether or not this person has saving, has saving faith. And you can't always tell perfectly. 
But we also need to analyze carefully if this person actually authentically knows Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to spend a lot of effort on the wrong things. For example, let's say that you share the gospel with someone, they pray with you to receive Christ, and then all of a sudden, about you know, two, three weeks later, they're just kind of gone wobbly. And you keep trying to help them to grow and keep trying to teach them some things, but they're just kind of variable in their commitment to, to meet with you and talk with you, and you don't know what's happened, but you know, they seem so excited. Do you need to keep knocking on that door and keep saying, hey, you know, I need to get you in a group with me and we need to study and all that kind of thing? No, you probably don't need to do that. What probably needs to happen is you need to go back to step one and share the gospel with them again. Because they probably didn't get it entirely the first time. On the other hand, if you have a person who you share with and they believe in Jesus and all of a sudden they are on fire for Jesus and they can't wait to learn and to grow and to begin to obey and follow Jesus themselves okay that's what saving faith would look like because to come from death to life is to exhibit some signs that you're alive right so Sometimes God takes out the rocks. Sometimes God breaks up the hardened soil of somebody's heart. Sometimes God yanks out the thorns and makes this person into good soil. And so you've got to know which kind you're dealing with. What was their response? Okay, well, based on their response, then I have a responsibility. If they're one of the first three, I need to go back and share the gospel again. If they're the last kind, I need to keep watering, fertilizing, and helping that seed to grow. Our job is to disciple those whose life bears fruit and to keep sharing the gospel with everybody else. And you have to do both. Now, talked a lot about discipleship. One last thing I want to say. I will not be here next Sunday. The following Sunday is Easter. Easter, we're not going to talk about discipleship. We're going to talk about and celebrate the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. That's going to be a great day. But the following Sunday, April the 8th, I'm going to start a discipleship training group here during Sunday school at 9 o'clock. It is open to everyone who wants to be in it. But there are requirements to be in it. First of all, you need to tell me before that day I'm in so that I can get you a book. Secondly, once you're in, then there's a couple things you're going to need to do. You're going to need to show up. You're going to need to memorize Scripture. And you're going to need to do your homework. There's only six verses to memorize. That's not a lot. We have asked the Iwana kids to do that like on a weekly basis, right? Do like six verses this week. So if they can do it, we can do it, okay? We're going to learn six verses. going to do 11 lessons. 
and you need to show up. And you need to show up virtually every week. Uh, you can miss two out of 11 weeks and graduate. Okay? So, if you're in, I need you to talk to me. And I'll promise you that this will be just the start of a much longer process, okay? But if you get into this, it'll get real exciting really fast. And you will learn some things in your own life. You'll learn how to do some things with other people. And it'll be, be really, really fun. And so if you've never shared with somebody, had them come to Christ and then help them grow, man, when you see them grow, it is the most exciting thing in the world. And it'll be some of the greatest joy you'll ever experience in life. So I will train you. You have to commit. And then it'll be fun. Okay? So if you haven't, if you haven't told me that yet, I've got... I think about five people who are in so far. But if you want to be one of them, let me know. April the 8th. I won't be here next Sunday. You'll have to take some initiative on your own to tell me. And, uh, and then we'll get going. Okay? So, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you for this parable where Jesus is very, very clear even as he tells us a story about what it means to have authentic faith in Christ. And that authentic faith in Christ is fruit-bearing faith. A faith that changes somebody's life and produces a result in obedience and love for you. And begins to transform us over a lifetime into people who look like Jesus and talk like Jesus and think like Jesus. Father, we, we want that. We want to be like Jesus in all of our ways. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here who hasn't ever put their trust in Jesus in an authentic way, that today would be the day that they do so. That they say, I'm tired of rejecting this. I'm tired of messing around, playing church, and pretend Christianity. I want the real thing. Father, I pray that right now you would plant the word deep into the good soil of their heart and cause it to grow. And Father, for those of us who already know you, I pray that you would help us to make disciples of those who possess saving faith and to be persistent and bold with those who don't yet. Because, Father, we know that You are cultivating the soil and that You're always working. And therefore, You bring a harvest even in the most unlikely places. Help us be faithful with the task. In Jesus' name, Amen. I chose this song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>